You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. If you're new this morning or new tuning in online, uh, my name is Ryan Sebastian. I'm the student pastor here at Hyde Park. And one thing that I do want to let you know, if you get to know me a little bit better, of course, I'm a little bit out there because I'm used to dealing with teens a little bit more. Uh, But also, if you get to uh, learn my personality and who I am, you'll learn very quickly that I love history, love history, studying specifically U.S. history but I really like church history. In fact, there is one part of church history in the early 1900s that always has fascinated me. And it's actually called the Welsh Revival of 1904. And these Welsh Revival was actually in a small country called Wales. It's located in the UK, very small country. And in the Welsh Revival of 1904, Uh, Roughly about 100,000 people came to Christ in a five-month period. Okay, you may think that, okay, if 100,000 people is still a lot of people, but when it comes to an entire country, that may seem small. But let me give you some perspective. If you take that equivalent and and take that to the U.S. today, that's roughly about 12.5 million conversions, people coming to Christ, within a five-month period if that was translated into the U.S. So during that period, there was a social impact of the Welsh revival that was astonishing. Judges came to court but had no cases to try. Robberies, murders, rapes, embezzlements dropped dramatically even to zero in some areas of this country. Also, the district council in one city held an emergency meeting to discuss what to do with police now that they were inactive. Okay? Imagine an entire country where there was almost zero crime because God was moving within that entire country. The Welch Revival later spread to America and a city, it was smaller impact, but it impacted the city of Denver, Colorado. And actually, in Denver Post, uh, wrote in January 20th, 1905, they wrote this. For two hours at midday, all Denver was held in a spell. The markets of trade were deserted between noon and two o'clock this afternoon, and all worldly affairs were forgotten. Going to and coming from the great prayer meetings, thousands of men and women radiated this spirit which filled them. Seldom has such a remarkable sight been witnessed. An entire great city in the middle of a busy week, bound before the throne of heaven and asking the blessing of the king of the universe. This morning, we're going to actually look at, Pastor Jeff talked about a little bit last week about the revival that's happening in the city called Ephesus. If you have your Bibles this morning, or those of you online, you can turn to Acts Uh, chapter 19, and we're going to continue this story of this revival that was happening in this city of Ephesus. See, when Paul came to Ephesus in Acts 19, the city was trapped in the stronghold of pagan 
religions. And within two years of ministry in Ephesus, Satan's stronghold was completely crumbling. In fact, we looked at last week in Acts chapter 19, verses, verse 19, and it says this, A number of those who have practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it, it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Okay, these believers in Christ were so impacted that they gave away, burned things that had financial value to them. See, Christians brought their books on magic, horoscopes, occult charms, all the stuff that they were clinging onto, they completely burned it and got rid of it. See, two things, there's two things I want to look at about these believers here in Ephesus that enabled them to have such a remarkable impact on their culture for Christ. And I want to look at two things that they did not do that protected them from ruining that impact. So what caused them uh, to impact their culture for Christ? The first thing is this, is that their lives changed so dramatically that it affected their culture, affected the local businesses around them. When you look at verses 24 through 28, it says this, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with all the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that, our, that this business we have are wealth. And you see that, see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So when they heard these, this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the main goddess here of Ephesus uh, was Artemis. So if you're a Greek, you know her as Artemis. If you're a Roman, you know her as Diana. That's the reason why some of your translations may either have Artemis or Diana when it's referencing this goddess. So this goddess was the god of earth and nature, as well as the mother of fertility. See, Artemis... Her temple was one of the seven wonders of the, of the world. In fact, it was four times larger than the Pantheon in Athens. Her shrine was huge. And the region Artemis, that religion even extended to the entire Roman Empire. There is estimated about 30 shrines all throughout Rome for this god. So a huge impact on the Roman culture. The tip of Artemis also superseded Roman law. In fact, if any criminal in Rome, in the Roman Empire, could make it to the tip of Artemis, they would be granted asylum. So Ephesus was not only crawling with actresses, sorcerers, and prostitutes, but they were also 
filled with criminals, felons, who became worshipers of Artemis. Ephesus was an amalgamation of sin, a stronghold of Satan. This was a very evil city. And fortunately, in some ways, it sounds like our culture today. Uh, we, and we, we have every form of depravity that is portrayed on TV, movies, music, you name it, it's right in front of your face, and it's even praised by our culture. When you look at verse 27, it goes on and says this, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may, she may be even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So Demetrius was apparently the leader of the local silversmith guild. Okay? He took upon himself to be the leader of this group of people. And, made, and, the, and he basically made silver souvenirs of idols of Artemis. So basically one of the things you did when you went in the city of Ephesus is you not only went to the shrine or the temple of Artemis, but you also can buy these little souvenirs and trinkets of little idols of Artemis that you can take and put in your home. And that's what these guys did for a living, is made these little idols for people in Ephesus. So Demetrius was basically saying this, either Christianity is stopped or will go bankrupt. So what caused him, what caused him to say that? What caused him to come to this point? See, in two years, a large number of people had come to faith in Christ. But pagan worship was so ingrained in the culture that the people who came to Christ were still practicing some of their old practices, still hanging on to some of their little idols, still buying these little souvenirs from Demetrius and his other silversmiths, buying these things. But as we looked saw last week, the believers in Ephesus had an encounter with a demonic power that made them realize how dangerous their continued dabbling in this pagan worship truly was. And that led the Christians to make a clean break from pagan worship, stop buying these little idols, and completely remove themselves from Ephesian idol worship. And the revival was so powerful that it started to affect this tradesman's pockets. It started to affect them. You know, sometimes I wonder what would it look like if every person who is truly a Christ follower turned away from activity or entertainment or behavior that was sinful or even praise sin. Completely remove yourself from anything that is associated with praising things that are outside of what God expects of us, praising sin. What, what, what would Hollywood look like? What would the music industry look like? What would TV industry suddenly take a hit and really feel and take notice of what's going on? But since the church today has compromised to our, uh, to our culture, we've compromised at large with our culture, I wonder if we'll even know. See, according to the Gallup poll, a large percentage of Americans claim to be Christians, but that number is slowly 
year by year declining. And it's estimated that nearly 5,000 churches close their door every single year. And that number is, keeps going up and up and up every single year. The question I ask myself is, where is the church? I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about a people. We are content to come to church, sit in a seat, listen to a good sermon, a good message, go home, and never impact the world around us for Christ. See, studies by secular TV networks as well as the Christian Broadcast Network show that, it, that the viewing habits of Christians, so-called Christians, are no different than those who are non-believers. There's absolutely no difference. That would, what would happen to our culture if all followers of Christ actually lived out the faith they claim to have? What would it look like if we shared the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone around us who was lost? What would our culture look like? The second thing that these believers did is that the Ephesian Christians had a reputation of wholehearted devotion. We look at verses 33 through 34. It says this. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, but Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So why would the Jews put forward Alexander to speak for them? You know, I really had to dig in this a little bit more in depth to figure this question out. But it seems like the Jews who lived in Ephesus were concerned that they might be associated with Paul. Okay, they knew that Paul was a Jew. In fact, probably the Greeks there knew that he was a Jew. So they want to dissociate themselves from Paul. I suppose if there's one thing people fear more than anything in the world, it's for, it's for a Christian to be totally sincere about their faith, to be labeled a radical. Now, you see, we are labeled a radical fanatic or extremist if we live out our faith like Christ. You know, that's the reason why Christ was put on the cross. He was seen as a threat, a radical, an extremist. And that's the reason, one of the reasons why he was put on the cross, and the Jews wanted him to die. And we are called to be like Christ. See, the believers in Ephesus were so devoted to Christ that they were ruffling the feathers of the Jews. They were considered radical. So here's a question I want you to like you to ask you, those who are here and those who are tuning in at home, is are you so devoted to Christ that the believers that you are around Consider you radical. Consider you radical. Now, we looked at two things that the Ephesian church did. Now, I want to turn things around and look at what they did not do. We look at verses 35 through 41. It says this. 
And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring the charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. For when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. What is interesting here is how this guy... This town's clerk is an unexpected biographer of Christians in the city of Ephesus, of believers in the city of Ephesus, and actually saying what they did not do. This Christian pagan, this non-Christian pagan politician tells us about how Christians acted in Ephesus and why they made such an incredible impact. Okay? Again, I want you to focus on what he said they did not do. We look at verse 37, it says, For you have brought these men who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. So the town's clerk pointed out that the Christians didn't act disrespectfully, disrespectfully of the Ephesian religion. Okay, Desecrating places of worship of other religions is actually a normal practice of a lot of religions around the world. Like, uh, like Muslim, Hindu, a lot of religions practice this. Okay? But the Christian faith is not spread through intimidation, but by the power of God's word and the influence of the Holy Spirit. See, the Towns Kirk also point out that they didn't blaspheme their religion. Okay, the Greek word here for blaspheme can be translated into insult, slander, curse, dishonor, blind. Here's the thing that I don't think our culture, supposedly Christian culture, understands here in America. Ridiculing other people's belief is not an effective tool to win people for Christ. Okay? It's not an effective tool to win people for Christ by ridiculing, slandering, bashing people. You know, I love social media, but I'm starting to hate social media over time. It seems like the longer I'm on it, the more I see supposedly Christian bashing other people because of what they believe instead of loving them. They're being nasty to them. And I see this more and more. In fact, as the more people I have on Facebook, friends on Facebook, the more I see this, even from supposedly friends that I'm on Facebook, the more I'm unfollowing people or deleting them off a friends list because I don't want to see that. See, the spread, the gospel is spread by a loving, heartfelt presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ using the word of God and trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not done by winning an argument and by bashing other people for what they believe. 
The second thing they didn't do is they did not try to change the Ephesians' behaviors by political activism. And yes, I'm going to go there this morning. See, the Christians at Ephesus created huge waves in their town. But how? How did they create huge waves? You know, Warren Wiersbe, which is a famous Christian author, he wrote this um, about this passage. He says, Paul did not arouse the opposition of the silversmiths by picketing the temple or staging anti-adultery rallies. All he did was teach the truth daily and send out his converts to witness to the lost people in the city. As more and more people got converted, fewer and fewer customers were available. And James Montgomery Boyce goes on and also says, how did Christianity triumph? How did Christianity win the day? The Christians did not circulate a petition to see if they could get 51% of the Ephesians to sign, sign it saying Artemis is no goddess and the God of the Old Testament is a true God. The Christians did not have a mass rally. They did not send Christians into the amphitheater to do their thing. They did exactly what Jesus Christ had done and what he sent them to do into the world. They preached the gospel so that men and women got converted. And once they were converted, they taught them how to live for Jesus Christ. See, I'm not saying that at times as citizens that we shouldn't be politically active. That's not what I'm saying. We should be active when it comes to saving the innocent lives and maintaining, even maintaining a voice in our society. But true culture change never comes by political means. I'm going to repeat that again. True culture change never comes by political means. Lasting culture change comes as we win one person at a time, one by one, heart by heart, eternal change shaped by relationship with Jesus Christ. That is how you change the culture. See, in our culture, we are seeing the normalization of premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, murder of the unborn, and it's endorsed or and ordained by politicians and even religious leaders in our culture. And we're seeing the rapid deterioration of the family. You know, when you look at the family as a whole, as long as I've been in ministry, uh, and as long as I've grown up and being part of a ministry family as my dad and my grandfather both pastors, I have seen no difference in the church when it comes to family than outside the world. The, the divorce rate is practically the same within the church as it is outside the church. So is there hope? Can we change our communities the way the Ephesians believer did? We can, but the only way you can is God's way. It's God's way. By being fully devoted to Jesus Christ, not by half-hearted commitment, not through politics, not through activism, and not even through civil disobedience. The church needs to learn from Ephesus. They were fully devoted to Christ and turned Satan's kingdom completely upside down. See, America needs revival. Lumberton needs revival. 
Hyde Park Baptist Church needs revival. I need revival, and so do you. There are three things we need to understand when it comes to revival. A big revival starts as little revivals in individual hearts. They start as followers of Jesus Christ get grounded and settled in the relationship with Christ. That's why faithfulness, faithfulness to a group of people that's this called the church is so important. That's why faithfulness to reading and obeying God's word and prayer is so vital. The second thing is that revivals start as Christians start getting things right with God and forsaking their sins and surrendering things that keep them from experiencing God's best. You know, 2 Peter 3.14 says this, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So how do you stack up to that standard? Of without spot, without blemish, completely blameless. Are you completely blameless before God? The third thing is this. Revivals start when Christians start sacrificing for the sake of the gospel. Start sacrificing for the sake of the gospel. See, the Ephesians built a big bonfire and burned things of great value to them financially. It hurt their pocket to get rid of the things in their life they knew that was keeping them away from having a deeper relationship with God. What things does God want you to throw away on the fire and sacrifice for God? See, this is how revival starts. Asking God to start revival in your life, turn away from sin in your life, and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. See, when God's people implement these three things in their lives individually, one by one, it's revival comes. And then it spreads to another, then another, then another, then another. You know, there's a hymn that used to be very popular. It was written way before I was born. And it's titled, The Lord Sends, the Lord Send a Revival. And the chorus goes like this. Lord, send a revival and let it begin with me. We may each experience revival of repentance and commitment today but it starts with you individually, revival in your heart. That is how you impact this culture for Christ. Let's pray. Do I thank for this time that we can get together, Lord, and worship you. And God, I ask you to please with each one that, that are here this morning and they're watching online, um, I pray that we actually look at our life and have a revival in our heart 
turning away from our sins, Lord, asking you to start revival in our hearts, turning away from our sin and sacrificing for the sake of the gospel. Because it starts with us individually before we ever can impact this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It starts with us. I ask you to please be with each one of us. Please help us evaluate our hearts and see where we are today and what we need to confess and repent of this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.